Welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show, where we get to speak to those on the forefront of the technology world on a personal level. We dive into their careers, some of the challenges they faced and how they've overcome them. Please help others find the show by rating us on your favourite podcast engine. Good morning and welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. I'm your host, Ernst Pelser. Today's guest works at Google in the US, is an author and a professional public speaker. He's also a massive advocate of Kubernetes and all things open source. I'm super excited to introduce Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So you've been a pretty busy man over the last few weeks uh, with podcasts. How's it all going? You enjoying it? Yeah, so for context, I went on Twitter and I was just talking about a few things, what's going on in tech you know, making the bold predictions as people do. And I said, hey, if you have a dope podcast, I wouldn't mind recording a few. And looks like we're number 10 now. So that's going off well. (laughs) And you've been doing that over a couple of days, haven't you? Yeah, it's been really good. Uh, Each show has been fairly different. You know, I guess when people start asking questions, you you tend to come up with answers on the fly. So it's really, it's really a great departure from being on a, a keynote stage. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So I like to get to understand the guests a little bit more, so their background in technology. So tell us a little bit about how did you get into technology in the beginning? If you rewind the clock back to the beginning, I moved from Long Beach, California to Atlanta. And part of that move, I missed like half a year of school. So straight A student, but you're missing like half a year. So you don't necessarily have the credits to graduate. And I remember I was given the option to join the uh, Student Technology or TSA as a Technology Student Association. And it was like, after playing sports, after your normal classes, you can do this after school program where you learn about technology and you would go and compete at the state level around various aspects of technology. And that was like my first introduction. This is around the 10th grade is when I really started to get into this whole computer thing. And at the time, it was mainly to just graduate on time, right? It's like you need to get these additional credits. And then it kind of progressed into a thing of maybe this can be my career. So that's where I started. And I think the very first program that I wrote was for the TI-86. I learned basic just to build little games that people were doing in this after school class. And I was like, you know what? This is just as cool as sports to me. And I kind of fell in love with the whole idea of creating things. So it's the creativity side of things that you you really you enjoyed from it. Yes, yeah, the idea of the things that are in your head, you can make come to life. And that was my very ex- first experience of doing that, right? I never had any artistic ability, like the ability to sing or to paint a picture. But this was the first thing that I think brought me close to being able to do something like that. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And then looking throughout your career, what are the sort of three milestones you're probably the most proudest of? Over my career, I think milestone number one was, you know, out of high school, I started a small computer store, like a company where I was doing a lot of consulting work. I had a small shop that I had about two employees that worked in. So this is just fresh out of high school. And I just went for it, right? You're naive. You have all this confidence. You're 18 years old. And I remember just buying some books from Barnes and Noble and said, look, I can do this in my local community. And I just set up shop. And I was able to pull it off and made money for a number of years. And then maybe four or five years later, I decided to get like my first job. And this is my second time at Google, but my very first W2 tech job 
was working in a Google data center as a system administrator. And I remember I studied long and hard because Google has very grueling interviews, right? You go deep into the kernel details, deep into the networking stack. And I just remember preparing for that interview and getting hired. So I think that that initial kind of build my own career, self-taught, not going to college, but still finding the ability to make it was milestone number one. Mm. Milestone number two was just doing public speaking for the first time. I went to a local meetup, saw what people were doing, and it was like, you know what? I can do it too. And I went from that meetup to, to the keynote stage. And I would say kind of milestone number three in my tech career is finishing what I started. I used to work in enterprise, and I remember getting there at this new company, financial institution, and lots of mainframe, you know, we would use terms today like legacy infrastructure, and just almost every challenge you can imagine, they had it. But I was able to stick it through and get to a good place within about two to three years of really doing the hard work it takes to do the political work, getting buy-in, educating the people around me, changing the culture, and just watching it happen over the years, getting to the point where I really felt like the first time ever, I was able to automate myself out of the job. And going back six years later, seeing that the culture stuck, the tools were changing because of that culture, meaning people were no longer afraid to adopt new technologies. I would say that's the biggest, or that third milestone is kind of what rounds me off today. That's very interesting because out of, you didn't once touch on your book, which is something we will talk about a little bit later. But I was really expecting the book to be one of those milestones. So that was really interesting to hear that story. Th uh, thank you for that. So I know listening to some of your previous podcasts, you're, you're obviously a very strong advocate for open source. W what is the driver behind that? When it comes to open source, like most fields require some credentials. If you want to be an electrician, you need to be a journeyman. You got to get a license. You got to go through all this credentialing. And that's not accessible to everyone. Not everyone has the ability to go through that. But when it comes to tech and having this kind of open source era already be in place when I joined. So when I wanted to learn this stuff, I could download a Linux distro. I remember going to CompUSA, right? These aren't open anymore. <laughs> you go to CompUSA and you can buy a Linux Pro magazine. And in that magazine was a CD with multiple Linux distros, articles about why this Linux distro was different than the other one that you got last month. And all of this openness really just presented all of the technology, all of this knowledge, because it's not just about open source, the, the bits and the code that you see in a repository. It's about the people openly sharing their ideas, teaching each other. And you're essentially getting like this PhD level access to some of the best minds we've had in technology. This is why I advocate so big for open source. Okay, interesting. Does that in any way translate to your own personal life philosophies in any way? Uh, maybe. I wouldn't say that I understood open source when I jumped into it. I just thought that's the way you do things, right? I came into computing when that world was already established. FreeBSD mm. was available, so was Linux was up and coming, and I can already see the two different worlds of the proprietary world where you buy everything and you work with the vendor and the open world which felt a lot of grassroots you know you can go at it alone and i would say my personal life i'm a minimalist right i like to share as many ideas as i can because i'm very comfortable where i am in my career so this level of openness being comfortable being able to express yourself 
really lines up well with the open source attitude and idea. You know, if you have a small problem that you want to solve, you can solve it without permission. And then if you so choose, you can share it with others. And that's like the story of my career over the last six or seven years. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so then you're now, you're obviously known for your role in Kubernetes and awareness of Kubernetes, okay? Why Kubernetes specifically? It's funny, like people ask me, what's the next big thing? Like I have the ability to identify the next big thing. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> the, the thing about Kubernetes was I spent a lot of my career as an engineering manager, as a developer, and I spent a lot of time in operations. So I've seen this whole thing from various angles. And I just know that when, when I saw Kubernetes for the first time, what it represented to me was the system that I would have built if I knew how and if I had enough time. All those things around distributed computing, I used to read about those things in white papers. Those are things that I just knew that the biggest companies in the world were using some ideas based on those principles, but I never really had the ability to start from the ground up. So when Kubernetes came out, it was this perfect point in my career but I had enough experience to understand and recognize what I was looking at. And then it was an open source project, so I was able to dive in and tinker at how it did its thing. And then I was able to do the mental mapping, right? Before Kubernetes, I was thinking back as to my time as in operations, I was the one using spreadsheets to keep track of all the servers. I was the human scheduler. I was picking all the machines that things run on. So seeing Kubernetes take all of those ideas, all of those fundamentals, and automate them away and give us this checkpoint in the technology landscape where we can say, now we have a common way of talking about these things and using them. Okay. So the interesting thing is, I man, like a lot of people, they love diving into a technology, but, but you've been very vocal about Kubernetes and sharing information, creating your own projects. Well, what kind of drives that side of it? Well, honestly, it's the way I kind of, grew my career in this space, everyone else being open, all the free programming languages I have access to, all the bugs I've opened and someone else helped solve them. All of those things have helped me become successful in my career. So when I think about the things that I want to work on, they are all also in that, in that world. For example, once I left the enterprise and I go to work at Puppet Labs, this is a company that's foundation is open source, right? The very first product is free. Anyone can download it. And then a commercial offering was built on top of that. So part of that job I spent, you know, a couple of years there is always interacting with the community. The community is where the customers come from. The community is where the customers live. So going through that process, you know, the business and the community were one and the same. And almost every job after that, whether we're talking CoreOS or now at Google, there's an open source component to what we're doing, right? So these ideas can be shared and adopted much quicker in the open source world. So this is kind of where that comes from. And this is why I choose myself to work in that arena. So from a security perspective in Kubernetes, I know you've mentioned one of the previous podcasts, or I think it might've been an interview with ANZ, where a lot of companies, some bigger companies are a bit fearful about using open source or Kubernetes from a security perspective. What's your views around that? That one's tough, right? Because it's about curation. You know, if you're walking down the street and you see some food on the ground, You'll take a look and say, I don't know how that food got there. So I'm not going to eat it. Even if you're hungry, you may not stop to pick that off of the ground because there's just too many unknowns. But you have enough context to make that decision. When it comes to software, 
you see the contributors are Google, Red Hat. These are respectable companies. They've done a good job traditionally with security and all these other things, but you're still a bit unsure. So you don't have enough context. And I think the biggest fear most companies have is they don't know what they don't know. If I download this software, what are the libraries that that software is using? Are those libraries updated? Is everyone that contributes to Kubernetes, do they all have the best intentions in mind? These are all the wow cards that go into this. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people are fearful of when it comes to Kubernetes is that it's so easy to deploy software using a system that was kind of purpose built for this. It has so many features, so many security features, and it does things really, really, really fast. So I think the fear comes in, if you have bad security practices now, you're about to expose those in a much faster and broader blast radius than you've ever done before. When you're doing everything manually, you're going to be nice and slow. You're going to affect one machine at a time. In the Kubernetes world, the automation is so good that a bad idea goes cluster-wide, almost instantaneous. And that can be fearful for people knowing that that's a possibility. Okay. So how do you encourage, let's say, a bank, for instance, somebody who's heavily regulated, to secure themselves when they use it or think considering using Kubernetes? So there's a couple of layers to that. One is the Kubernetes project itself. Just like we saw with the Linux world, when Red Hat and Canonical and all the people who provide distributions of Kubernetes, their goal is to make that promise for you. This is the right version. It has all the right patches. We're being proactive about the security posture of this software. They're, mm. We're responsible for paying attention to the CVEs and making sure that they get rolled out and you're notified. So I think a lot of times it's that technology partner. We see it throughout our lives, right? Your mobile device, most of the software you use, there is someone at the helm taking care of these things so that way we can always stay up to date and patch. So that's that level of the software. And so there's plenty of people to buy that kind of engagement with Kubernetes from. And then when it comes to using Kubernetes, why would you want to do it exposing yourself to this risk that we just spoke about? Number one is, at least you know what's out there. Right now, if I go to most organizations that have hundreds of servers and say, what's on every server right now? There's going to be a bit of scripting. There's going to be a bit of, let me log into this server. Let's do an audit. Whereas in the Kubernetes world, since most things are just deployed through a simple API, I can use that API to give me a report of everything that's running, when it's running, what it has access to. And for the very first time for most people, you now have a system where you can articulate a lot of concerns. You can articulate who gets to mount what storage volume. You can have RBAC policies on who can deploy where and when. You can do things around network policy at both the L3, L4 layer, or L2, L3 layer, and also security at the L7 layer, which is a big gap for most companies. They don't really describe policies all in one place. You typically have, you know, you're crossing your fingers to make sure that someone updated the firewall. You're crossing your fingers to make sure that someone didn't place an application on a node that they shouldn't have, and you're only going to find out once that's exploited. So I think Kubernetes provides a lot of this visibility, consistency, and it's a big policy kind of security configuration system of its own. And once people see that, they start to understand the trade-off. I know you were in Australia, I think, in about June or July. Are you seeing a big gap between the U.S. market and Australian market, let's say, in the, again, in the banking environment from a maturity perspective? 
Lots of people think that the U.S. is so ahead on everything, right? Like there's this myth that the U.S. just has it all figured out, and this is not even true in Silicon Valley, right? So for those that aren't familiar with the U.S. geography, when we say Silicon Valley, we're we're thinking San Francisco. All the way down to let's say Cupertino or Sunnyvale, California, and this is about an hour drive, right? So maybe you know ten, fifteen, maybe twenty miles between each other. And between those two places, you'll have a lot of companies who may look as old school and uninformed as some of the other enterprises that you're alluding to. And then right down the road, you'll have Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. In some cases, right across the street from each other. So I think there's a case where there's a lot of U.S. companies who are kind of leading the charge, like Google and the, a lot of these cloud-native ideas and principles. And then you have some banks that are a little bit forward-thinking. For example, Capital One, KeyBank. A lot of these companies are embracing some of this technology, doing the hard work on the security front, and then trying to find value where they can. I think in the Australia world, you just may not have the numbers of companies、mm-hmm. that you can draw from. But in Australia, think about it, Alassian. Is seen as a global leader in a lot of technology, right? A lot of people use their ticketing systems. Bamboo. I actually used a lot of their tools in the enterprise that I talked about earlier, where I was able to automate everything end to end using the Elastic Stack. So I think it's just a, really a numbers game. When you only have a handful of banks, you may not have enough to draw on to find those outliers that you see in the United States. But I will tell you one thing. Most of those banks that I was visiting when I was in Australia are very aware of the technology landscape. They're making use of one or two components here and there where it makes sense. But to their credit, I mean, they have almost a hundred years of history, right? You have mainframes that are still working, processing the majority of the world's transactions, and that stuff just has to work. They can't play around and have that stuff not working because it's cool.、Mm. So to their credit, I have a lot of empathy. But they're not as far as away as you think. They just have a bit more challenge trying to retrofit this multi-decade-old infrastructure. I want to touch a little bit on the on your book. So that was published. Kubernetes up and running in 2017. I'm a little bit more interested in learning about your journey once you've once you published that book. How how did things change for you, if any?、Mm, that's interesting. I mean, in your mind, you're like, once I write a book. It's all over with, right? That's it. I'm gonna walk through the airport. I'm like, hey, you, the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> And in some cases, that happens, right? If I go to KubeCon, that's definitely a thing. I think the book was me just sharing what I've learned until that point. So most people kind of knew about me already in the Kubernetes community from the videos, the keynotes, the workshops, various things on GitHub like Kubernetes the hard way. So I've always, always been sharing these ideas. I would say one thing though. The thing that kind of changes is now I have a new respect for what it takes to write a book. So writing the first, I would say six or seven chapters, maybe the first hundred pages, kind of did it all by myself, just trying to figure out the outline, trying to figure out how should I present this information. I started with mostly the tutorial pieces. I really want the book to show people exactly what we meant by every section, every chapter. But I couldn't finish the book by myself, so I brought on two co-authors, Joe Beta and Brendan Burns, and both of them used to work at Google. They're at different companies now. Joe Beta is at VMware, Brendan Burns is at Microsoft, and they both brought a lot to the book. A lot of them had a lot of the original ideas, being co-founders of the Kubernetes project itself. That the book is so much better now, having those co-authors kind of fill in the gaps, 
and then add new things that I wasn't even thinking about. And were you doing speaking engagements before the book or was the speaking engagements after the book? Yeah, I think I was speaking at least kind of on a global stage, whether it was keynotes or workshops, many years before the book. So before Kubernetes even came out, I was giving, speaking at local meetups for sure. And then at my puppet days, right? So this is seven years prior, I would say, maybe six. I was speaking at the puppet conferences, DevOps days, these kind of venues, and yeah. just kind of connecting with my community there. And then even when I was at CoreOS, which kind of predates Kubernetes by two years, I was given a lot of public conference talks there. The Go community was just getting warmed up before Docker really came out. And I remember doing a lot of talking around, you know, the Go programming language. So I don't think the book accelerated my speaking career. It kind of cemented it. Okay. I'm very interested with regards to the book again. Is that something that you had, have you always wanted to write a book? Or was that just like, look, I've got all this information. Let's use it. What was your approach? What were you thinking there? Yeah, I learned so much from O'Reilly books in the past. When I wanted to learn Python, I bought an O'Reilly book. When I wanted to learn Linux, I bought an O'Reilly book. So years prior, I had the opportunity to become an OzCon chair, like the conference, the open source conference, where I cut my teeth on so many technologies. I read so many books from that company that in my mind, I wanted to be within that, in my eyes, that kind of that tech hall of fame of people you know, I wanted that animal on the cover. I wanted to be a part of this information of the world that's accessible to people. So I decided that I really wanted to make sure that I was able to do the same for others that those previous authors did for me. I think my first book, my first study book was a Novell book. And that was also O'Reilly's book, if I remember correctly. Novell 3.12 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember I, I remember porting one of those systems to like Windows or something. Like, what is this Novell thing? Let's get it out of here. <laughs> yes. We've already touched on the similarities between the Australian and the US market. Okay. Moving on a little bit, what are you working on now? So it's funny, like, let's take the literal right now. And this weekend, my wife is a vice principal in middle school, and she was working on, you know, in middle school, you kind of have these award ceremonies when, you know, good GPAs, you know, showing great leadership. All the students get this, these awards for various reasons. So I'm watching her open this spreadsheet where she has all of these students broken up by grade. And she's in Google Slides trying to make awards for each student. Now, I'm trying to just mind my own business, but there is no way she's going to finish this anytime soon. And I asked, like, babe, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm formatting this name so I can start making these awards and get them printed. I only have a few days, so I need to focus. So I wrote some code for her. I said, hey, let's do this. Let me teach you a little bit about working with the data. And then maybe we can write some code that actually goes from the spreadsheet and just automatically generates the awards in Google Slides. So I learned a bunch about G Suite. I learned a bunch about the APIs. And what was really nice about it, it reminded me of like why technology kind of exists as a superpower. It's not just to build and deploy Kubernetes. There are real people out there in the world that have real things to do, and they only see technology as a tool to either get that done faster so they can focus on something else. And that's what we were able to do. We were able to get that done. So that is kind of the things that I'm looking to do more of, is finding more places in the world 
where we can put technology to use, not even just advanced technology, even things as simple as automating two G Suite applications so that someone can save a little time. And outside of that, I think this serverless thing has my attention. This idea that we can make infrastructure disappear. That is something I'm super interested in. Like, it's very hard for people to adopt all of these technologies from the bottom up. There's、mm-hmm. something we can do, especially working at a cloud provider. Can we not take these technologies, take all the best practices on security and usage and configuration, and just make those endpoints available? That has to be something we can do. And we've done it before for email, for DNS, CDNs, lots of things we've already done this for. Now it's time to do this for general compute. One of the things that you said there is that it's solving a real world problem for somebody. You, have you heard you talk about that in the past? Where does that habit for you come from? You know, where you kind of really look at what the customer is trying to solve and, you know, then trying to build a solution around that. If I look at all the things or checkpoints in my tech career where I've been super successful, it's always taking someone's pain. And making it go away. And no one really cared about what tool I used, whether it was Puppet, Red Hat, Linux, Kubernetes. That's always secondary to building a reputation for actually getting things done. So I just grew an affinity towards really understanding the problem so I can get another dose of what it feels like to solve a problem end to end. I think a lot of times, and me personally in my career, I can remember back. Getting too focused on the technology and just lose complete sight of why I'm using it in the first place. You start having arguments around what CI CD system to use, what logging structure should we use. And it's like, let's just pick one and see if it solves the actual problem. And if it does, then we can table the debate because that's not what we should be debating. We should be debating have we solved the problem or not. So it just took a little bit of maturity from me. And I've just, Found that my path to success. That's very interesting. I asked that question specifically because I think you, 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 well, you just alluded to that is where sometimes we get caught up so much in the technology and forget about what the actual problem is that we're trying to solve with the technology. Is there any other technologies other than Kubernetes and serverless that you're focusing on at the moment that you're excited to be learning or trying to learn at the moment? Yeah, so I'm a fundamentals person, right? I like. Fundamentals. Like, I'll go back and study SQL. It's been around for a very long time. And we went through this kind of trajectory in the industry where we're like, no SQL, SQL's bad. It's old school. We can just reinvent SQL from scratch and it'll be better. And then we kind of see this full circle where some of those same systems now support SQL. So, those fundamental principles, like, why was it successful to begin with? Why is it still successful now? So, I seek out and learn and try to remind myself of some of those. Fundamentals and those fundamentals having that grounding like TLS today in the service mesh world, a lot of people are just like, Wow, you can do all of this service to service s security. And I'm like, TLS mutual auth is at the foundation of that. And those are just kind of existing technologies. So, what you'll see me do is take a new technology, whether it's service mesh, Envoy, Istio, all of those tools, and I just like to decompose them into their fundamentals and then go down the fundamental rabbit hole and say, Hmm. This is a familiar system. Is this a net new idea? Or are we kind of repurposing a former idea, but maybe with a different API or a different use case? 
that's the most interesting thing to me because it helps me truly understand what I'm using. So just listening to what you've said there, I kind of get the idea that you've got a really good understanding of a very wide range of technologies, but you've just chose obviously chosen to focus on the Kubernetes and the serverless side of things. That's a very interesting approach. I, li I like that approach. And the okay. reason why I've taken this is when I first started my career, like most people, I got to learn everything, right? You look at all these experts and they seem to know everything. But once I really pulled on that thread, it turns out that most experts only know one thing. And it's the fact that I'm listening to so many experts, it just looks like everyone knows everything. So what I decided to do then is that whenever I'm engaged in a technology, either I'm helping build that technology, I'm helping use that technology, I was going to go super deep because it turns out every one to two years, I'm always switching and moving around. So maybe I'm working on two or three technologies at any given time. If I just go super deep on those, I'll get the breadth of technology over time. So throughout my career, if you look back, there's these checkpoints of me just going super deep on different things. But then when I step all the way back, it's like, wow, I went deep over like 15 different areas of technology. Mm -hmm. And all of that knowledge serves me well today. So how do you break down? Because, you know, I, I take like, let's say the security world, right? Security world, there's so many different elements you need to understand. You need to understand everything from databases to apps to, you know, to networking, all that type of stuff, right? When you take a really big topic like that, how do you approach it and how do you break that down? So to me, security is a practice, right? There is no special mm. magical security configuration. So since I know that part, that it's just a practice, then the idea of security is about focusing on what you want to secure. A storm is coming. Do I board up the windows? Do I change the locks on the door? So then it's that threat model. If a storm is coming, sure, I could use better locks, but I'm not worried about someone kicking in my door at that point. It's a storm, so I'm going to go focus on the windows. So then you start to research what does it take to prepare your windows for a storm. Well, the storm is coming soon, you're gonna to have to make some trade-offs. I can't replace the windows. Even if I could afford to do that, it's still not a timely thing that I can do right now. So the best course of action is to board up the windows using the old skill hammer and nails and some wood. And that's the trade-off. And I think security is just like that. What is your attack vector? What do you believe your attack vector is? And then having a little bit of focus in those areas to be as secure as you can for the threats you know about, and maybe you try to future-proof a few things, but it's just a practice, right? We don't know what we don't know. So I think this is why monitoring and observability is a big part of security, right? Just like in an right. airport, they have lots of cameras because they can't have a police officer at every terminal waiting for something to happen. Instead, you have to focus your security measures at the clear points of interest, right? So maybe when people are coming into the airport, but you may not have those in every checkpoint. So what you got to do is you have cameras to fill the gap and that gives you your monitoring. And the same thing is like that in computer systems. So it's a practice. You have to trade off where you can and you got to focus on the areas where you think your attack vectors are. I'll ask that question for, especially for our younger audiences because I think, you know, there's a lot of technology to get excited about and trying to, and getting focus on the technology is really, really important, especially as you, when you're entering the career. I love, by the way, I love your use of analogies. 
Awesome, great. thank you. <laughs> a little bit of a fun question as we're kind of getting towards the end of the podcast, right? What is a question that nobody asks you, but you wish they did? Ooh. See, here's the thing. There's questions people don't ask me, and I'm glad they don't. I think, like, why do I do what I do, right? So that's, that's, that's the key to Kelsey. A lot of people will ask me questions about how I do what I do, what am I doing, but the why. The why part is the one that I'm always asking myself. Why am I giving this keynote? Why do I even care about Kubernetes? The why piece starts to get into the person themselves mm -hmm. because there's a lot of context into the why. Sometimes I'm motivated by, I just want money so I can retire early. Sometimes I'm motivated by like seeing my wife about to spend an entire weekend doing something by hand. There's also the softer side of the why. You know, I met a, a person at a conference. I was speaking in London and he came up to me. He just wanted to shake my hand. And I was like, he's like, hey, I just wanted to meet you. I just wanted to shake your hand. And I'm always curious, like, why do you want to shake my hand specifically? And this person told me that they were in jail, right? Not for anything, I guess, super terrible because they weren't in jail for a very long time. So this person was in jail and he said, I was watching YouTube videos about this thing called Kubernetes and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I'm watching your videos and it just stuck with me. I was like, I just want to learn this Kubernetes thing now. Like your demo seemed to be fun. It seems like you were having fun. And I figured, hell, I got a lot of time on my hands. Why not learn this Kubernetes thing? And I was interested, like, wow, so what are you doing now? This guy was the team lead at a startup building a Kubernetes company. And he opened up his laptop and he gave me a demo of the product that he helped build. Now, the founder didn't know this, that he was in jail, actually, because in tech, typically, you don't ask that question. And the founder came while he was giving me this live demo. And the founder was like, yeah, this guy is our best employee. And I'm so glad that we were able to hire him on our team. And that changed his whole life. Who knows what world he was in before? But the world he has now has him at tech conferences. I'm pretty sure he's able to provide for his family. That's the why. Those are the reminders that I get of why, because this stuff has the potential to change people's lives in a very serious way. Thank you for that. I'm really glad I asked that question because that was a really, that was really good insight. And I'm uh, good on that in the individual. When you're not talking about Kubernetes, what else do you spend your time on, you know, whether it's in your personal or work? Man, there's two big things. One is financial independence. You know, there's, there's this idea of the FIRE movement, but for me, in the communities that I come from, a lot of people don't have a really great financial education. And for a lot of people, just the idea of creating a budget, of seeing where their money actually goes. And when you put things down on paper, I mean everything, full transparency, then you can actually have a conversation with the people around you. And you can say things like, I am broke. Can you help me? And sometimes the help is, do you really need an unlimited data plan on your phone? And you can have a conversation. Is it, is it really worth a percentage of your income to be able to check Facebook on the road? If it isn't, mm. then maybe you just hop on the same Wi-Fi that you're paying for on line number 45. And to put that into context, then people understand that, look, you're trading your life and your time for work. But here's the thing, though. You're forcing yourself to work even harder because of some of these decisions you're making with the output of that work. And just having that conversation allows people to really, really think about being able to take a little bit more control over their lives. So this is not necessarily about investing and how to get rich. 
but just cheap pe- teaching people financial responsibility, so that, that way they're not trapped behind a thing. Because I think a lot of people in this world, when you get behind financially, it dictates a lot what happens into your life. It dictates what doctors you can see. It dictates how you get to experience the world. So I kind of like to start there because it's a very tangible place for me to help other people. Now that I've started to understand that world and you know reach financial independence on my own, I just want to show people the very small parts of how to get started. And then honestly, I think most people can kind of take it from there. I think the last thing that I kind of spend a lot of time on is just kind of reflecting on enjoying and just being present. So I'm one of these people that like to clean up. I mean, I seriously like to clean things. Dishes, <laughs> mopping floors. I fold the towels like they fold in the department stores. I just like to clean. And the reason why I like to clean is when my family comes home. See, I work from home every day. And my wife and daughter come home from school and from work. And they see a clean house. And when they see a clean house, it just makes people feel a certain way. When you walk into a clean room, like when you check into a really nice hotel and everything is clean, everything smells good, it just, it just feels good. So I like to give that to people. It's like a gift that I can give to them every single day. But while I'm cleaning, it's a way that I can appreciate the things that I have. So cleaning them, I'm a minimalist. I don't really have a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of clutter. But when I get to clean those things, it really shows that I appreciate them and it reminds me that this is what I'm working for. These things don't own me. I'm in full control and I can keep everything in order. Awesome. Okay, great. And then one last final question. When are we seeing you back in Australia? I'm definitely coming next year for sure. Okay. I hope now, yeah, I was in Melbourne for maybe three or four days. Uh, Next time I'm going to start in Sydney and maybe work my way back to Melbourne. Uh, we have lots of Google Cloud customers there and lots of people in the open source community. So I'm lo- really looking forward to dive into both. I mean, we had some amazing meetups the last time I was in Australia. I think we had maybe four or 500 people come out to a meetup that had no chairs and they wow. stood with me. And we had a conversation basically for almost two hours plus of people just standing like it was a concert. And I really felt a really good vibe and energy uh, when I was in Melbourne. So I'm coming back for more. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, be be sure to look me up. It'll be, be great to meet you face-to-face. Will do. Well, Kelsey, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute honor. And yeah, I would love to see you in Sydney next year. Thank you for listening to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us by rating the show on your favorite podcast platform. If you do, send a screenshot to our host, Ernst Pauser on LinkedIn for a shout out in the next episode. Please reach out if you have any feedback or questions.